This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to a, another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda, uh, my good friend Danny Abdeljabar, and our frequent guest, Joseph Solis Mullen. Hey, Joe, how's it going? How are you? Going as good as the warmongers who make our foreign policy decisions will allow it to go. That's pretty much where <laughs> okay. I'm at. I'm in total cynic so, mode. Uh oh. Okay, so this is going to be a spicy get, episode. First and foremost, guys, sorry for the lack of content over the past two weeks. Um, selfish reasons, I'll be honest. I was in Puerto Rico for my bachelor's party with Danny. That's where we recorded our last episode. So I took time. We we took time off to uh, enjoy the beginning of the summer and the last week or the last uh, I get married in July, the last month or 60 day period of, uh, of bachelordom enough about, you know, my, my personal trip. Um, let's talk about the news. Um, that's why you guys are listening. I want to talk about this to start us off on this show. This New York times article came out and, um, you guys have both read it. And, Mm -hmm. um, the New York times has been, I think as good as they are capable of being, like they've been, pretty factual over the past two months or past uh 100 days since the war in ukraine started you know obviously falsifications you know they happened through a mission but overall i the new york times i think is doing a pretty solid job that was just with their war maps their their day-to-day coverage now they recently just published an article that to sum it up it basically says that U.S. intelligence, there's radio silence between the United States and the Ukrainian army. We don't really know what's going on there. There's really not any oversight over the over the weapons that are going there. Um, we don't really have a good idea of what the casualty figures are in Ukraine. In fact, we actually have a lot more information on Russian casualties, but we have we don't really have we don't know the information of how many Ukrainians die. We just we just know that Zelensky said 100 um, every single day or so and 500 uh, wounded. Hear me out right here. My immediate reaction was this article has to be some type of like intelligence operation because I cannot believe for a second that, or actually I could believe, I could believe this just because of like the, you know, what, what we saw in, in Afghanistan with the sack of Kabul and how, you know, our intelligence said that, you know, it was going to be about three months until the Afghan army fell and you know, the Taliban walk in and it falls in a couple of hours. Now, it's hard to me. To, it's hard for me to believe that there's radio silence between the United States and the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian government, because the U.S. 
accurately predicted the Russian invasion. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, the U.S. is, is uh, you know, providing most of the intelligence. Actually, they admit that, that they provide most of the intelligence when it comes to artillery and, and uh, you know, striking Russian units. So I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Or let me start with Joe, our guest. What do you what do you think? Well, I, I think I would agree. Whatever complaints I have with any of the major papers, whether it be the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, you know me. I read all those papers, even though I disagree with much of the commentary that I find in them. I think on a strictly factual basis, I think their coverage of the war in terms of who's going where, what's going on has been solid. But I think that about all the papers. I think that about the insane financial times. I mean, so on that level, I'm not surprised. Um because people want to know about this, and if you're giving crap coverage, it's very easy to pick up another paper. And as you said, a lot of their deceptions have been by omission. You know, for example, by pretending that history started three months ago. When, if you even Google the Russo-Ukraine, the, the Ukraine-Russia war, everything will tell you it started eight years ago, right? But they pretend like it started three months ago. So, on that level, uh, I would say yes, I, I agree. Uh, I, I would also say that I, it's odd because I've, I had actually read a couple of pieces similar to the New York Times piece in other outlets, uh, one of which was the Wall Street Journal, which I read pretty much every day. It's one of the papers I read every day, um, who had said basically the same thing. And, and the, the, what they were saying was, we don't know where the arms are going, which I know the New York Times says that as well, um, which that's not surprising, Right. Uh, I know you wanted to talk about Somalia and you mentioned Afghanistan. I mean, the, the, the playbook is just dump a ton of weapons in there because who cares? It's a million miles away. Even if it turns into a problem, it's not going to be our problem. And let's be let's be real. There are political pressures. Um, and these have uh, many sources. But you would be risking your political life at this point if you were sitting in Congress and openly defying sending whatever the ukrainians want um congress really only ever gets involved in foreign policy when there's basically you know an issue they think they can they can be really you know shallow but you know obviously in the right um without asking too many questions so on the one hand it's totally realistic to think that they're just dumping weapons in there and have no idea where they're going and are not in contact with the ukrainian military uh you pointed out the the fact that, that they're saying we know more about Russian casualties than Ukrainian casualties and, and things like that. That could all be true. Uh, and in part, the Ukrainian line has been, well, we don't want to give you that information because your intelligence network is just one big leak machine. And it's going to show up in The New York Times tomorrow how it's going. And people are going to realize, oh, crap, the war actually isn't going that well. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should start listening to people like Emmanuel Macron, who's getting just crushed this week for saying the only adult things of any Western leader, which is, uh, we seriously need to back this down and look for an off ramp. And everyone's like, boo, boo, coward. It's like, what What do you want to do? Uh, and as you pointed out with that article, there's no plan. There's no plan. You read any of the major articles and they just leave it to your imagination. You know, they make it seem like if, if this just keeps going, if we just keep dumping arms in there, eventually Putin's going to get ousted and some Alexei Navalny figure is going to show up and he's just going to be a handy CIA sock puppet. And isn't that going to be great? And then we'll have China totally encircled. That's how these crazy people think. And they're totally detached from reality. And uh, 
and from the consequences. I mean, the Europeans are bearing the brunt of this. Back in January, you wanted to talk about the economy a little bit. I'll just bring this bring this up now. Back in January, the ECB uh, basically said we're we're going to stay soft. We're going to stay accommodative. You know, our inflation problem is is not the same as the United States, which was largely a product of the stimulus and the Federal Reserve's activity, despite what the propaganda machines would have you believe. These are not Putin price spikes. These are the result of our own policies. Um, Europe's inflation is almost entirely carried through from the war. Um, so they are going to event. They need to stop this. I mean, apart from the refugee crisis and the danger to Europe, um, I mean, they just need to stop it for for financial reasons. Um, you know, uh, do I believe that we're not in contact with the army? No, I don't believe that. I believe the Ukrainians might be being cagey about giving us information, but that would be a wise thing to do from their perspective. Um, and it's not like Washington is beating down the door demanding answers, right? They send whatever the Ukrainians basically want anyway and make these big public shows of debating, oh, should we send them more weapons or should we not? And what constitutes an offensive weapon? When Putin has been explicit from the beginning, any arms transfers at all are considered belligerent. And that he considers those convoys uh, leaving NATO countries with U.S. troops legitimate targets. So... Uh, you said U.S. intelligence, really good, called the called the invasion. I just want to pitch something to you game theoretically, because I'm I, from the very beginning. I have said that Washington provoked this on purpose, because think about it game theoretically. If you think there's a chance Russia's going to invade, you've got any intelligence that says that. Go ahead and use your bullhorn diplomacy, make it public and put pressure on Putin to actually follow through when you purposely thumb your nose in the face of his, you know, demands, uh, which were like maximalist outrageous demands just that's your starting position right but the but joe biden basically said forget it and he left him with the choice of invade ukraine or back down on a core issue and so there, there's a lot of people who have, who have said that like basically the u.s put in a position by saying he was going to invade uh that basically he had to invade him so i think that was a really reasonable strategy for our deep state planners to have Whatever the morality of it is, that's not a concern for them. We starved 500,000 Iraqi children to death in the 1990s to teach Saddam Hussein a lesson. So I don't ever think morality comes into into play um, in these in these arguments. And I think most of what we get is manipulation. Um, so and the New York Times is definitely included. I mean, they are a mouthpiece of the government. You're never going to see them reporting something. Hey Danny, can you put yourself on you put yourself on mute when that motorcycle comes by? It's a, it's already gone. I did. Okay. Um, I was just gonna say maybe we can take a look at what you know the reasons why uh, this New York Times article states that uh, we don't know anything about what's going on on that side. And you know to kind of sum it up a little bit, it's the article is basically saying that we've been targeting Russia with our American spy agencies for the last 75 years. So we've got, you know, the types of systems and, and, and workflows to be able to, you know, go after information from Russia. So obviously we're going to have a start, like a head start in that respect. And on the other hand, until somewhat recently when Ukraine became its own thing and, and even more recently when, you know, we started aligning ourselves more closely with Ukraine about eight years ago and even more more recently, if you want to bring it to the beginning of this war, you know, our 
our MO, our, our modus operandi here was not to spy on Ukraine, but rather to help them build up their own intelligence agencies. Now, obviously, that that comes with its own, you know, uh, um, channels of information, like we should be knowing things by virtue of helping them set up their own. But I guess the argument that this article is trying to point out is that because we they're not adversarial to us, we don't have the same capabilities set up because we don't expect to need any information against them. I imagine similar things might be true of other friendly nations uh, that don't necessarily communicate with us, you know, regularly. That's a possibility, right? So again, I'm just playing devil's advocate mm-hmm. here, just yeah. throwing out the arguments, you know. Um, and another reason I think that they're trying to encapsulate here is that Zelensky, you know, to your point, uh, Joe, he's kind of holding his cards close to the chest. Apparently, we know what their strategic goals are, but just not the steps that they're taking to under to get to those goals. And one of the interesting points that they pointed out was that one of the reasons why they might not be telling us the exact nitty gritty, the day to day, you know, that even just down to the counts of how many people died was because it could have an impact on, you know, the U.S. and or Western coalitions um, opinions on how to support Ukraine, right? So if they were telling you, oh, well, today we lost 5,000 people, right? Uh, We might think twice about whether or not they'd have the capabilities to win this war or at least achieve their strategic goals. So by keeping it at the high level strategic goal and not reporting back on the leading indicators of success for those goals, they're able to keep the interests aligned and high and they can it's almost like checking the stock market you know when i'm not a big stock person i have some investments when i would check them every day i'd freak out right and i'd be like oh god i'm down five percent today should i sell this is going to go bad but realistically i think if you don't check it every day and you check it maybe once a week or once a month or something like that you start to flatten out those ups and downs and i think that's the play that that this article in particular is trying to paint for uh, the Ukrainian side, for Zelensky specifically. What do you think about that? I mean, uh, I think I had already kind of touched on on that uh, in my in my lengthy discourse on my dislike of the New York Times generally uh, because <laughs> they've been so wrong on so many things, and they're only a paper of record in the sense that mm-hmm. retrospectively they run very tiny c- corrections about how wrong they were. Everything from Hunter Biden's laptop to WMDs in Iraq, and we can go all the way back further than that. As far as U.S. Mm -hmm. intelligence capabilities, I would not give them that much credit. Um, They were totally shocked by the Soviet collapse. They were totally Mm -hmm. caught up for all their for all the you know billions of dollars we dumped into spying on them. We were completely shocked by the one thing that you would think they would have some insights on. I think it's perfectly reasonable for Zelensky to play this thing close to the chest because Washington even though they're his, you know, he's their guy. I mean, well, I shouldn't even say that. He got elected on a peace platform. He ran on implementing the Minsk II Accords and he got into office and found that the ultranationalists who were being backed by the United States uh, basically laughed him off and said, we're not doing any such thing. And so that basically put him in a position. There's video footage of that, by the way. Sorry to yeah, interrupt, yeah. but there's vi- there's video there's video footage of him going to confront some of these Azov guys, and they basically 
just laugh at them. Yeah, because they had Washington's support, right? They were Washington's guys. There are kind of people. They're moderate rebels. Okay, we like mm. moderate rebels. So, uh, you know, I think it's very smart of Zelensky to play it close to the chest because the war is not going particularly well for them. And without tons of Western arms, this thing would have been over already. Um, so I don't I don't think there's really any controversy about that position um, without I mean, we're literally paying to keep their government afloat. I mean, their government is a wreck. They've got no money coming in. They can't get their foodstuffs out, um, you know. But from Washington's perspective, uh, in terms of geo strategy, things are going great, you know, uh, from their perspective. You know, they're a little annoyed that, you know, now the election's coming up and, you know, they're trying to blame inflation on Putin. So maybe that'll work for the midterms, you know. But I don't know. There was a lot of talk about you have to be tough on Russia because you look so weak leaving Afghanistan. Um, mm. so again, domestic political considerations, like you, you just, what you left Afghanistan in the fall and it looked so cowardly and weak and pathetic. Um, even though it was totally the right decision to get out of there, uh, although we'll never actually leave the middle East because the middle East is important to China and, uh, their goal is to mess with China ultimately. Um, right. so I've, I've, you know, I know that among Democrats, Putin has become this like, it is the thing that explains all bad things. Putin did it. Um, but on a more general level, I think from like a the deep states perspective, our, our actual security plans, the people who actually make the policies, I think they were looking at China this whole time because the similarities between this and the Taiwan conflict are just too obvious. And uh, Taiwan is far more strategically important than Ukraine, period. Full stop. It's not even close. Um, so, and this was a nice test, a nice testing case for them to see how well their sanctions worked and to experiment and, you know, they'll fine tune them. And, you know, that's, that's just another day and another day in the beltway, I guess. That's how it goes. You know, all the people dying aren't Americans. So, you know, we know that American, the American public is not averse to casualties and killing tons of people. They're averse to American casualties. They're allergic to those, but they don't care how many Yemenis or Iraqis or Afghanis or Ukrainians, anybody dies. Uh, you know, I always like to tell people I talk to from like Australia, Indonesia, Philippines, like our government would sacrifice millions of you in a proxy conflict with China. So don't mistake it. And most of them know most of them are, are pretty overt about it. I find that there's actually a lot of. Um, well, the elites in all countries are very small and they tend to know each other a lot. And so when you bring on so and so from the Philippines, like who's spouting an American line, like, of course, you know, they've had a lot of contacts with high level Americans. They might have done university study in the United States. They might have held a think tank fellowship for a while. So there's a lot of that going on. There's also foreign governments literally funding think tanks, you know, funding universities like the Qataris donate almost a billion dollars to U.S. universities, a billion dollars. That's know? a lot of money. That's a lot of money. You know, we look at someone like the NRA and it's like, wow, they're really spending a lot of money. They're not spending anything compared to what the Saudis or another foreign government can and do spend to influence our policies. And that's probably why they're such a disaster and not in our interest at all, like the war in Ukraine and like the eventual conflict over Taiwan. Maybe we can talk about the eventual conflict in Taiwan. I don't think we've talked about this specifically, but not too long ago. Uh, you know, Biden made a little bit of a gaffe saying that uh, we would go ahead and back Taiwan. It's the fourth time he did that. Mm -hmm. It's not a gaffe anymore. That's policy. That's what, okay. the, that's what the military planners and the deep state, 
That's that's what the policy is. Because is he saying the quiet thing out loud? Changed the policy only ever changed because China was useful in balancing against the Soviet Union. But as soon as that threat went away, all of a sudden they looked at the deal they cut with Beijing in the 90s and were like, well, that kind of seems like a handcuff on our freedom of movement. Aren't we in charge now? Can't we start tweaking this policy? And that's exactly what's happened. If you look at what was agreed to, um, we were not to have a diplomatic presence. We got a huge multi-billion dollar complex flying an American flag with U.S. troops there. We got U.S. military trainers there. We weren't supposed to have those either. I mean, we weren't supposed to have any defense commitment to Taiwan. Taiwan Relations Act specifically precludes that, saying only the supply of defensive weapons. Um, so, I mean, it, the, the policy has been slowly eroded for decades. Um, there was a really great piece uh, by the guy who actually was Nixon's translator on the Beijing trip talking about this, talking about the slow erosion of the U.S. policy uh, toward Taiwan to the point where now, I mean, it does not matter. That's why I tell people it doesn't matter what Jake Sullivan or Anthony Blinken or anyone comes out and says after like, well, he didn't mean the thing he obviously just said again. <laughs> come on, guys. Yeah. What do you take that for policy? Come on. Come on. And people talk about Donald Trump being a loose cannon. My God. I mean, it's it's really incredible. And, and you know, we talk about like the op-ed page. Yes. Every once in a while, the op-ed pages, even foreign affairs will occasionally give someone space like Dr. John Mearsheimer or Stephen Wall space to say something against message. But you know what happens next? The very next issue is a bunch of pieces criticizing that piece. Like it basically serves as a way to like introduce a contrary opinion and then just crap all over it for days afterwards or issues afterwards. Like I literally watch it happen. Like I, I read way too much news, way too much. Um, I actually have noticed since the Ukraine war uh, really picked up steam here uh, when Russia invaded, which that will turn up the volume. Uh, there has been a slow shift in like coverage on China. Whereas before it was always China is so freaking dangerous and scary. And oh my God, shouldn't we be scared of them? Over the last few months, you've started to see more and more articles about, well, actually China is kind of weak compared to us. And like their economy, that's kind of struggling. And like militarily, we're probably much stronger than them, you know, and Taiwan, Taiwan's an island. So like, you know, that's way easier to intervene, you know, ignoring the fact that the Chinese have missile batteries everywhere that could blow up an aircraft carrier from 2,500 miles away more mm -hmm. sea mines than any other country on earth and even more submarines than us. So when we had talked about the area denial, you know, strategy, and we had talked about like their lack of ship, right. lack of surface vessels, like mm -hmm. that is totally reasonable to say that like China's surface vessel fleet is a total joke at this point. Although right. that didn't stop the wall street journal from running a series of alarmist pieces about the Chinese floating an aircraft carrier, which whoop de doo it's a piece of crap compared to our own. And it's one aircraft carrier, but we're supposed right. to feel super, <laughs> duper alarmed about this right very unsafe i mean i just don't know the solomon islands basing agreement i don't know if you guys saw that in the news but that was mm -hmm. regular uh fodder for weeks after that and it's just outrageous to act like i don't know if you guys know the backstory there at all but basically there had been a bunch of anti-chinese riots and some chinese have been killed and their businesses got burned down and, you know, they basically took a couple of years, negotiated an agreement where they could bring their ships around occasionally, check on things. And the Hawks in Washington are just beside themselves. This is just outrageous. And we're so unsafe now. And uh, right. Australia I, I got really up in arms how, about like, that. How one. would 
how would we react if another country treated us that way and just acted totally belligerent towards us all the mm-hmm. time? And it's not and it's literally it goes from blocking adoptions of kids, canceling university transfers, doing these like bizarre spy hunts for, for people within academia with any ties to China. Um, right. Recently, there was a small semiconductor plant in Britain that was bought by a Chinese Dutch affiliated firm. The Biden administration behind the scenes let it be known to the Johnson government that it'd be better if that deal got reversed. And now that review, that deal is under review, even though the Wall Street Journal itself, you know, in a throwaway sentence admits that, like, actually, these are pretty low tech chips that mostly go in like hair dryers and uh, ovens. <laughs> but uh, it is super dangerous. And we need to na- they, they, they because the, the pretext was national security, right. national security. I mean, it's 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 on every level. You know, and even libertarians are are bad on this issue sometimes. I I know that there's a, a serious split within the libertarian party. But like, I just picked up a copy of Reason the other day, which is like the flagship libertarian publication, and they had this whole spread about Ukraine and China and stuff that was just so wrong, like just ridiculous in how wrong it was. So I mean, the hawks are in the ascendancy, and uh, I, I don't see our policies getting much better uh, from here. Uh, Taiwan is, is a definite flashpoint. I think Henry Kissinger, who I, you know, I don't like Henry Kissinger, but I was surprised I to read that he's still alive, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and giving more lucid commentary than Joe Biden could have at 25 when he was plagiarizing papers in college. Mm. I mean, his speech was a good one I mean, at, at Davos, if, if you take a look at it. Um, and he was very explicit, like the, the relationship, he said a lot of things, but um, the relationship between China and the United States should not become about Taiwan, but it's increasingly becoming about Taiwan. And uh, that was a deliberate choice. Um, you know, people like to criticize you for saying, well, you know, countries have core interests and we should tiptoe around those and not do provocative things like orchestrate a coup in Ukraine and put our own proconsular government in there and then send the CIA in to start, you know, training neo-Nazis and, you know, just acting like it was all Russia's fault to begin with, like saying something like that is totally out of line, you know, just like it's out of line to say something like Taiwan is not a country, even though it's not and the UN says so. And the U S government line says so, mm-hmm. but you know, the truth uh, is, is not what, what politics is about. So. Well, Joe, let me ask you this. So Russia is, it's one thing to have a hostile policy towards Russia, you know, they're, they're relatively poor for their population size. Um, I think like 140 million people there. Now, uh, isn't there enough like big business pressure in the United States that wants access to Chinese markets? Like, isn't there enough business pressure to um, kind of to trying to force the government Steer not to be so- – yeah, to steer yeah. policy towards something that is not like, you know, something that could super be hostile. Potentially, <laughs> yeah, hostile. Well, <laughs> a lot of times corporate interests are important, but again, I would point out that the money corporate lobbyists spend is often dwarfed by the money foreign governments spend. Uh, the Taiwanese lobby us hard. The Ukrainians lobby us harder than anyone, or have over the last year. There was a great piece by Ben Freeman about that. Uh, showing that for the money, there's no lobby more active in Washington than Ukraine over the last couple of years. Um, I would say this. Yes, on one level, 
but on another level, uh, 2017 will be the year of all fans. fans. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, the, no, well, the, the thing <laughs> we is, we will is, make the case in Washington for Ukraine. Did you, they do. I, sorry, I had it. I had, yeah, I had to interrupt. Did you hear it's that? Not. Did you hear that speech from Lindsey Graham? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 2017 yeah, I, I will be the year of offense. At least, we Tom, will Cotton go to willing, at least Tom Cotton was willing to die for U.S. belligerence. <laughs> Lindsey Graham's a total chicken hawk, right? right like, whatever right. we think about Tom Cotton, he was willing to die. So even though he has crazy ideas, I can't really, you know, fault him for that. Same with Pete Meyer, my own rep. Like, he was willing to die for U.S. imperialism. So, like, all right, Dan, I guess you know, Dan Crenshaw is yeah. another one. It's but, better yeah, than Cheney, I mean, you know, or, or someone like that. Um, no, with regard to business interests in China, yes, those were very important. But the Communist Party, uh, especially Xi Jinping, uh, orchestrated a silly crackdown and, and really freaked out a lot of investors. And there was there were a lot of problems in the Chinese economy already. Um, and I had, I had written about those. But then then the CCP's actions really freaked out investors. And, and now there's a fear of sanctions, because what if the company you invest in gets caught doing business with Russia and. You know, you can read it in the wall in in every in basically every major paper pieces about how ooh dangerous to be doing business in China, and even paper in papers like the American Conservative or the National Review have devoted whole whole cover stories to basically demonizing investment in China. Like basically ran a whole cover story back in November about the Bush family has been investing in China for decades, and it's like is is that bad? Didn't didn't they raise help raise like a billion people out of poverty or something? We all brag about, yeah, over the last four years, we've cut global poverty in half. It's like most of that was China raising its billion people out of poverty. So. No, yeah, that I mean, was the I, best I, thing that ever happened in world history. What do you say? That's like the, in the 1980s when when, um, you know, Milton Friedman goes over to China and says, hey, guys, you need prices like this isn't yeah. working out. And they, you know, <laughs> become capitalists. And, um, you know, the standard of living goes from, you know, cannibal raids to, um, you know, the, constructing these major cities. That's like that's the biggest increase Huge turnaround. in standard yeah. of living yeah. I, I can I can think of in, in world history. Like a million, hundreds of millions of people were lifted out of poverty. And, you and know, now we, that they're we rich, act- all they're asking for all the scaremongering in books like the 100 year marathon and. The China's grand strategy to displace American order, you know, and all these garbage books that people get paid to write that are just totally devoid of any kind of, you know, perspective at all, except China is super dangerous. And here's why. Totally neglecting the fact that it was the U.S. that militarized the relationship. And I'll take you back to the point when, because actually the CCP's own internal documents that, you know, over the years, they, you know, they release them, you know, they release English translations. Um, They talk about. The, the Congress's reaction, the U.S. Congress's reaction to the Tiananmen Square crackdown, which was a massacre, right? Like they shot a bunch of people, um, yep. you know, no different than our guys shooting a bunch of people in some crowd control exercises. But because it's China and Congress saw an easy issue, they tried they were they started slapping sanctions on China and the Chinese regime would not believe George H.W. Bush, who was trying to tell them, like, ah, yeah, we don't want to do this. We know we're trying to keep good relations, but we can't really control what Congress does. Chinese did not believe them. Then the Gulf mm. War came along and they had expected uh, the U.S. to get bogged down 
like a Vietnam style quagmire. And instead, what happened was the U.S. bombed the living crap out of uh, Saddam's army and drove them off in like a week. That seriously freaked them out, too. And it freaked out the Russians as well. Um, and then the Taiwan Straits crisis, you know, I mean, literally another one like the, the Taiwanese being totally belligerent. And, you know, the U.S. just comes in with the muscle, right? Sails the aircraft carriers right through from Eisenhower onward. That was the policy. And China came to realize because the Chinese study what Americans write and talk about. And all the talk was about liberal capitalist democracy, the end of history. All regimes will be like this and America will make it that way. Well, if you're not a liberal capitalist democracy, how do you think that bodes for you? Not well, not very well. Right? especially yeah. when you consider the actions of the U.S. Congress and then the actions of the Bill Clinton administration, which say whatever you want about George H.W. Bush. I've written pr plenty of critical stuff about it, but I always try and include something nice because I really think he was the last competent leader we had on foreign policy in the White House because he he tried to manage the breakup of the Soviet Union. Well, he had lots of intelligent things to say about Ukraine and the potential dangers there. He also knew the dangers of, of, you know, provoking China and ruining the relationship that had been cultivated there. But that, you know, that just all got thrown out you the window. You also stood up to the Israel lobby sometimes. Right. And and so, you know, it's, it's, it's tough because today I think we can all be realistic. U.S. politics is driven by pandering to whatever they think the public will latch on to. It is not about making unpopular decisions that are in the national interest. It is about making the decision that is going to get you reelected and then just kick the can down the road. How are we $30 trillion in debt when it's a simple matter of making some budgetary cuts and raising some taxes? It's really that simple, but nobody does it. They all criticize each other and then they run huge deficits, which it's interesting. Our annual deficit, <laughs> it's interesting, uh, is basically what we spend on our military, which is like a trillion dollars once all everything's said and done. So like we're playing Sounds empire like we on got a solution. <laughs> we're playing empire on the credit card. Um, I, mm -hmm. that's, that's the reason I have become totally committed to defaulting on the U S debt. I wasn't for years and I've become convinced that it's the only way we're going to shut off Imperial mode is if we destroy the ability for them to execute the military Keynesianism that they've become so comfortable doing. So we could try and, and force you... that would, that would force the fed to try and take it all onto its own balance sheet. And it could theoretically do that, but monetizing the debt in that way is not good. And we have a lot of inflation right now, which shouldn't surprise anyone. Well, what would be the consequences of defaulting? Some breaking news. There was a man who was trying to cross the U.S.-Canada border. This was recent. And he was caught with snakes in his pants. He was trying to smuggle pythons from Canada into the United States. Pretty crazy story. And I'll leave you to create your own jokes about that. But uh, we have some other breaking news as well, and that's Harry's Razors. So Harry's Razors, they're carving their own path in grooming to give you a better designed and better value grooming products. Harry saw customers getting ripped off by questionable shaving products. So they came up with their own way to make beautifully designed razors without the ridiculous prices the big brands charge. Guys, I recently hit second puberty. Guys who are in their mid-30s will know what I'm talking about. And I have to shave every single day now. So um, I was using these very crappy razors, and they would get dull right away. And often, I would end up using my wife's razors because my razors would get dull, which is bad for everyone. Well, hairy shaving products have changed things for me. So it's a really great quality shave. I never cut my face, and uh, my face 
feels nice and smooth. Also, their shaving cream smells really good. I really feel like a new man whenever I use my Harry's razors. These razors are some of the best out there. They're for an awesome price as well. They're German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. There are customizable delivery options for scheduled refills as low as $2. That's half is what you pay for other big brands. That's a really good price, guys. And uh, you have to go with this, the uh, subscription. So I use the subscription because it prevents me from having to go to my local pharmacy and then ask a person to help me because the razor is often behind some type of security plexiglass. Harry's razors are awesome. I love them. They're the best shave at the best price. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash brohistory. That's harrys.com slash brohistory for a $3 trial set. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Like what would happen to like the, like the average American? For the average American? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, it would it would it would in large part depend on the on the reactions of the international community, uh, because a lot there there are a lot of foreign debt holders. This would not be the first time we've defaulted on a debt. Um, we have forced investors to take haircuts multiple times. Almost from the inception, Alexander Hamilton forced investors to take a steep haircut on the debt. And so did Nixon when he went off gold unilaterally. That amounted to a huge haircut for anyone holding U.S. debt. And the U.S. basically said, what are you going to do about it? Well, at the time, 1971, 72, no one could really do anything, right? There was no alternative. Today, it's easier to imagine an alternative uh, where all of a sudden countries, and there's been talk about this because of the, the weaponization of the financial uh, international financial system by the United States over this war over whether or not it's smart for a country like Saudi Arabia or China to be buying so much U.S. U.S. debt, which, frankly, probably not a good idea at this point, and they should probably stop doing it. If I were one of their strategists, that's probably what I would recommend. Uh, it's tough to find alternatives, but again, if if they were concerned about the political ramifications, the Fed could short-term take everything onto its own balance sheet. Um, you know, I don't know how it would go long term, but I know hundreds of millions and, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of people wouldn't get bombed to death in my name and on my dollar in the name of keeping me supposedly safe when there's no evidence that it does that at all. So what does it mean to take it on to take the Fed could take it on their own balance sheet? What does that what does that mean? The Fed could just, the Fed could just buy it all itself. It, the Fed, when the Fed does an open market transaction, all that means is the treasuries that are issued by the treasury, the Fed just prints some, digitally prints some money and buys those treasuries. That's all that, that's it, all that. Would that create like inflation because they'd have to wipe oh, yeah. up money out of nowhere? Uh, yeah. So it then would, defaulting yeah, it on would, those. It would create inflation and that's part of why we have inflation now because there was a lot of debt monetization 
going on apart from the the interest rate policies and all the other things that were going on the QE and so yeah I mean the Fed could theoretically take the entire economy onto its balance sheet like that would be disastrous but uh, hardly more disastrous than the last 30 years of U.S. policy, which have made us poor, unsafe, and honestly, at home, it's it's definitely caused a lot of problems. Um, I mean, it resulted in the birth of the national security state and apparatus that spy on us continually and spy on foreign leaders. I remember you said something about, uh, we don't keep close tabs on our allies. I can still remember the day I woke up to Angela Merkel blowing up obama's phone because she found out the cia had bugged her phone <laughs> yeah and she called obama demanding to know if it was true and i just i really wish i could have seen obama handle that phone call because he was such a non-confrontational guy like uh, angla, calm down calm, calm down angla you know what calm down. yeah just i don't know what those folks do with the cia they told don't me get that your schnitzels in a twist <laughs> don't. but no i mean i obviously don't want any wars and look, it's not like Ukraine, you know, is going to be some wealthy, prosperous country after this. They weren't before. They won't be after. Who is this for? The EU agreement that sparked the so-called revolution of dignity in 2014, but which was a blatant U.S.-backed coup. I mean, th they paint that EU association agreement as a choice between freedom and prosperity and democracy and evil old Putin. And it was Putin who who torpedoed it by bullying and bribing the malleable, weak Yanukovych. Wrong. Not what happened at all. Right? I mean, basically, Yanukovych showed up to sign the quote-unquote association agreement and found an agreement that no other country had ever been asked to sign, which said, you will A, be joining the, e, joining the EU, you will not do any business with Russia, and you will adhere to joint European security policies. Huh. What's that mean? Oh, NATO. That's right. It's NATO without saying NATO. These were stupid, provocative moves. And Brussels and Washington, like they had to have known what was going on. And after things went bad and the French and the Germans negotiated the Minsk Accords, basically Angela Merkel gave Obama a courtesy call like, hey, I'm going to do this. And Obama was like, yeah, whatever, because he had no intention of ever following through on it. Basically, the, the forces who were, you know, armed and didn't want to quit the, the fight against Russia basically just turned to Washington and were like, said, we have to stop. And Washington was like, no, actually, we'll train you guys. And, uh, you know, maybe eventually we'll get a president to send you some real hardware, which eventually they bullied and battered Trump into doing so. So. Anecdotally, I think public opinion is, is changing. I know there's polling data that suggests that uh, less and less Americans are uh, supporting the war in Ukraine or supporting further escalations. And I guess what the realist school is uh, suggesting or the realist on uh, like John Mearsheimer, for example, his big thing is that. China, the United States made a big mistake in actually, uh, you know, fostering the economic development of China in the 1980s. Like that was a mistake and the U.S. is going to be paying for it. And, you know, China is going to be a real enemy uh, in, in, the, in the theme of like great power politics. They're going to be the real enemy. So um, they're Russia and China is going to be this dangerous enemy that. The United States is going to have to contend to uh, contend with 
And I don't know. I think there, there, there actually is some truth to that. That is actually a dangerous enemy. What do you think? I know I just ranted on, so I don't know if you want to take any of my points. We made them dangerous. Yeah. 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 Policies made them insanely dangerous. But what, what does that mean? We should escalate. We should push all in. We made tons of mistakes, so now we should just fight them now that they're strong. I mean, it was a bit, look, if, if you're interested in the moral argument, it is more moral to have let them abuse their trading privileges. Uh, everything from favored nation status to WTO membership, even though they never followed the rules ever. Uh, you know, if, you know, they'd occasionally get their hands slapped real hard eventually and like say something or make a minor tweak, but they were always flouting the rules and, you know, their labor standards were a joke. I mean, it was basically slave labor in a lot of cases in these special economic zones set up in part with Xi Jinping was, was one of them. He actually was the one who fostered, um, oh gosh, why am I blanking on his name now? Jack Ma, uh, Alibaba. Um, I think that's why he came down so hard on him. He was like, I made you, how dare you speak out of line against me? So, but anyway, um, it really was, I couldn't even believe it when Jack Ma criticized uh, their policies publicly and then promptly banished for three months and his company's IPO was destroyed. And, but which again, freaked out Western investors, freaked out Western capitalists. So, but no, I think if you want to make a strictly moral argument, it was more important to let I mean, think about how many infant, think about how many children did not die of malnutrition during that time. Like, mm -hmm. yes, now China is in a state where it can defend its interests. Let's be clear what we know its interests are for all the scaremongering about invading every country in the region and landing on our West Coast, which people like Tom Cotton actually seriously believe or want you to seriously believe that they seriously believe is the logical end game for China, even though that's never what they've said. Um, and there's no real precedent. I mean, yes, at various stages over their 2000 year histories, yes, China has fought wars with, you know, modern day Vietnam, the kingdoms there, the Koreas, you know, sure, sure. But in terms of actual policy, they've said they want the United States to stop meddling in its internal affairs, which we have been doing since the 1850s. That's not a mistake on my part saying 1850s. Franklin Delano's grandfather was one of the old China hands who helped keep the quote unquote open door. This was basically when all the strong imperial powers were feasting on a weak China and the U.S. basically their argument was, well, we would prefer people not take advantage of China, but if they are, everyone should have an equal shot at it. And we continually <laughs> intervened in Chinese politics for years after that and actually deployed troops. I actually got into an argument with some person on the foreign affairs thread who eventually had to give up when, you know, a simple Google search revealed that, oh, ah, wow, obviously we have. Um, it's not a secret. That's the thing about our government's actions. Most of it is public information. People act like you're some kind of conspiratorial nut job. The government literally publishes most of the stuff. We have a very free society in terms of our access to information. There's just so much of it. And people are so uninterested and this stuff matters so little to their lives. But social media gives them the ability to have an opinion about everything, which is terrible. And so, of course, the Ukraine war starts. It's a pretty clear case of like one country invading another, which is bad. So we're all opposed to that. But they don't know anything about it. So like they just gung ho. We support Ukraine. And so the Congress people check their Twitter and they're like, well, I, f I better support Ukraine. What, what's the establishment? What's the you know foreign policy establishment in Pentagon telling me we should do? The Pentagon has tons of plans. That's all they do is plan. Their whole job is planning. 
So, of course, they have ideas and they embrace them and, and things escalate because, of course, it's the military. We have we have such militarized diplomacy. It's nuts. I mean, we reach for the stick or threaten it regularly. Our hard power. I mean, uh, our use of economic sanctions. I mean, those were considered a form of warfare. Right up until the U.S. basically said, OK, guys, this is no longer considered an act of war, but we are going to try and kill large numbers of your people. So and make you poor uh, for disagreeing with us, basically. Uh, why are you know? I mean, even though they don't work, if they worked, Cuba would not still be Cuba, but it is. And sanctions couldn't even break Cuba, but it's going to break Iran and North Korea and Russia, and it'll break China too. So they better watch it. Well, I, I just does that, does that mean our? Sorry, does that mean our, our like? Would you would you argue that our soft power our sucks, soft power or sucks? just that we're just it, we're not? Our soft power was destroyed by our overwhelming use of hard power. Economic power is not soft power. Soft power is things like cultural influences, commercial influences, people wanting to emulate your kind of political system. Economic power is fundamentally an aspect of hard power. Military power is the most hard edge of hard power. But if you look in the actual literature, ec the economic actions are considered an aspect of hard power. Um, so like Joseph Nye, who was in the Clinton administration, he's a, he's a really great political scientist. I disagree with him about a lot of things, but I think he's a very smart guy. Um, he's written a lot about, about American soft power. Um, and in the 1990s, he wrote a, a whole string of really great books about him that I highly recommend anybody who's interested want to read. Um, they're great. Um, but no, I mean, uh, you can you can basically chart, uh, you know, opinions about um, public opinion, It's which is hard to know, you know, hard to trust polls. But like certainly in official communiques, fear and un discomfort with the United States and our government peaked during times when we were being very belligerent, which shouldn't really be surprising. I mean... It's hard to tell people you're a peace-loving, prosperous republic when, you know, all you do is go around blowing people up, you know, and yeah. just writing about it in these really, I was just reading a book by, oh, who was it? It was some ex-CIA guy writing about our first intervention in Beirut, 1958. And there was a passage where he, he talked about suppressing dissent. And it was just a one-line throwaway where he said, after heavy fire, troops were able to regain control of the streets. Now, that is political speak for U.S.-backed soldiers shot a whole bunch of unarmed civilians and cleared the streets, except for the corpses. When we say that there were, you know, civilian, you know, collateral damage, they don't even use that word anymore because everybody knows what it means, you know, and they always try and mm -hmm. put distance between themselves. And what's going on using proxies, the South, the war in Yemen. I mean, it's just that's a perfect example. Um, even in Ukraine, where, where the guy where our guys were doing most of the killing, uh, the U.N. says 14000 people were killed between the coup in 2014 and the outbreak of, of, of renewed, you know, real hostilities when Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, the overwhelming number of them were Ukrainians killed by the Ukrainian government. I mean, 10,000 people got killed over yeah. what? They didn't want to support a government that had been put in place by a foreign power and that was trying to make the Russian language illegal and all sorts of other kinds of stuff that was obviously provocative. I just I don't understand why any of this is at all controversial. Actually, I do. It's because 
most people are grossly uninformed about these issues and they are lied to constantly. Um, and when I say lied to, like Henry said, it's lies of omission. You gotta stay on message. And the only mistake that Biden and company made was trying to pin all the economic problems we're having right now on Putin. Because in truth, it's not really Putin's fault. Uh, you know, we're, we're not getting hit terribly. There are a lot of countries that are going to be horribly, horribly devastated and are being horribly devastated right now. And I, want, I actually want to talk about that because it's something that Let's really uh, it. is just awful. Let's go into it. Okay. Well, well, so, for example, well, let, let me interrupt you Russians real quick. Been... Joe, let me let, interrupt you real quick. Did you see Putin's or hear Putin's speech from a couple of days ago about um, th- uh, the U.S. inflation, about being blamed for all the economic problems in the United States? A couple of days ago? Because I read something from him last week. It might have been a about, week ago. Did he say something? It, it was, it was recently. It was, I met, it okay, was recently. Okay. He, had a full, he had a full speech. That it was like a 20 minute speech on U.S. monetary policy. And I had never yeah. like you would never, ever hear a U.S. politician go so as by- in depth. And basically he's and I'm just like listening to it. Like I've never heard like a U.S. politician explain U.S. monetary policy better than Vladimir Putin did just now. And basically he goes on and he just talks about how. The reason for the inflation in the United States is because of their spending during COVID-19. They spent, we did, we had the same policy. And then he says in this, he's like, we actually had the same policy, but we were more effective in like our money printing during the lockdowns. But, you know, he goes on for 20 minutes using like statistics. And I was like, I've never heard a, uh, a Western leader go so in depth yeah, I mean, in monetary policy. Yeah, I mean, Putin's he's, he's provocative and... Yeah, he's he's provocative in some things, and he you know some things are probably you know are probably you know he's kind of using skewed figures, but like just the spirit of the the spirit of the the, the debate or the argument was was there, and I was like, wow, this is pretty crazy. And then he goes on to talk about the solutions yeah. for uh, the food crisis, and he starts blaming Ukraine for uh, you know yeah. the, you know how there's yeah. the, the mines yeah, you know, uh, around yeah. Odessa, um, but. From a technocratic standpoint, Putin and Xi are both far more versed and sound far more competent than any of our own leaders. But our leaders aren't really the ones making the policies anyway. So I guess, you know, from a public perception, you know, it does look bad. But I mean, having read years and years of Putin's speeches, I mean, yes, he is, you know, like most politicians, an inveterate liar. Uh, you know, who likes to use statistics for their own means. But like, yes, it was was essentially correct in saying that the U.S. inflation has very little to do with the war in uh, Ukraine. Um, It has a lot to do with China's lockdowns, uh, which, again, have nothing to do with the war in Ukraine. Uh, It has to do with our monetary and fiscal policy, you know. Uh, And, uh, well, let me just say this about the food. So the Russians are stealing Ukrainian grain and trying to sell it abroad obvious thing to do. The Biden administration has let a bunch of these really poor countries who are desperate for this food, let them know, don't take that food. That's stolen Ukrainian grain. It's like, are you kidding me? You got countries where people are, where literally they're, they're talking about a million people starving to death. Like, don't you dare take that food. Don't you do it. Like, we're going to sanction you First if all, you take from that a food. global public relations perspective, knowing 
just how much resistance there is in the developing world to so many of these policies. Like this wasn't even something that needed to be in the media. Like it could have just been a quiet, like, yeah, go ahead, you know, go ahead. It never needed to be a story. And instead they made it a story and just made it the grossest, most immoral story ever that in order to help shore up our war effort, your people need to starve to death. All right. Start, start taking this more seriously now, you know, it's it's just shocking. This is going beyond just shocking. fighting to the last Ukrainian. This is it, now fighting till the last starving Yemeni as well. I, I have I have yeah. this, this this funny image of of uh like you know some U.S. official saying uh uh-uh, take it out of your mouth out of, out of your mouth now that's Ukrainian grain take that out of your mouth right now that's Ukrainian grain. And this and this stuff sounds terrible because you know. It's defending Putin. It's not defending Putin. It's making general observations about things. Like, I don't have a position other than that countries shouldn't invade each other and that it's wrong to invade other countries. That being said, there's a reason the invasion happened. Seems pretty clear to me why it happened. States are not moral or immoral actors. Like, states have logics. They have interests. They don't even have permanent friends. They have interests. And if you get in the way of a core interest, history shows and logic dictates that the stick comes out. And so people criticize me for saying things like what I say and write publicly all the time. Uh, And for me, it's just like, do you want to have more of these conflicts in the future or not? Because to me, we want to reduce human suffering, raise human betterment, just take a look around the world. Is it better or worse from the Ukraine war? Okay, what caused the Ukraine war? Well, Putin invaded. Well, of course, fucking Putin invaded. And I hate, here's another thing. I've stopped saying, I've stopped introducing all of my articles and talks on this, but with the, I unambiguously, you know, criticize his war because, because it occurred to me, no other conflict has that ever been a requirement. I've gone back and reviewed countless articles and interviews about our totally illegal invasions of Iraq and of Serbia. And no commentator ever started their by saying, I unequivocally disavow this illegal invasion of Iraq, except for George W. Bush, who went ahead and said it the other day in a, you know, typical. Did you guys catch that? Please tell me you yeah, saw the, that. The, the Frody, the... In one of George W. Bush's first public speaking events ever, they gave him a microphone and he goes ahead and makes a classic George W. Bush flub, which was really probably just a Freudian slip, really. <laughs> Uh, no yeah, dictator you know, for 20 years should be able to invade exactly. another country <laughs> like Iraq. I mean, I mean, if, Ukraine. If unfamiliar with what happened. He, George W. Bush was basically in the middle of this long extended discourse about how bad Putin was and how bad it was to invade other countries. But then when it got time to say Ukraine, he accidentally said Iraq. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. And then he just kind of, and then he literally was just kind of like, eh, whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> That's me. Whatever. And then everybody <laughs> laughed about it because everybody knew. Die. That's going you know, me. U.S. soldiers have all sorts of health issues from those stupid burn pits. All sorts of psychological issues. Like, I have friends who killed themselves who were over there. Like, fuck you. And his whole stupid fucking audience that laughed. And we're just giving him a <laughs> chuckle and like, ah, hey, he's an old guy. That's our George. That's our George. Yeah, so, it's like I tell people, you want to go by body count? The U.S. presidents just since the like, if you go Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, we have killed directly or indirectly way more people 
than China or Russia or North Korea or any country you want to pick. But if you aren't willing to say that we are that white city on a hill and everything we do is great, and if there are any mistakes, well, they were just with the best of intentions. I mean, I have many bridges to sell in Brooklyn if people really believe (laughs) this. I mean, you have to willingly not look. You have to purposely not look at the facts. And and refusing to parrot the government's line is somehow unpatriotic. Our government is not the country. Republicans and Democrats are not the country. Their policies suck. They've made us unsafe. They spy on us all the time. They've gotten us $30 trillion in debt. And disagreeing with their lines is somehow unpatriotic. Uh, for me, I mean, that's just outrageous. So if, if anyone is listening to this and is like, hmm, read Noam Chomsky's The Responsibility of Intellectuals. Because if the Ukraine war is just too sensitive to you, maybe wind it back and read about Vietnam in opposition to that mm-hmm. one. Because you'll find that, oh, wow, a lot of the same stuff was going on there. Actually, the same stuff. And it was only people who, like me, are just secure and in a position where I can just say whatever I want and no one can touch me. Like, there's nothing anyone can hold over my head. No job, no money, no nothing. Uh, actually, it was very telling. Both Stephen Wall and Stephen Cohen uh, had had said that they had been approached by former students who said they felt very strongly against U.S. foreign policy and they wanted to speak out about it. And they were counseled by these two very not, you know, realist, you know, not pro all this stuff we've been doing. Counseled them to just keep their head down and just do the work because they were going to destroy their careers. You know, you look at these kids who are in college, they get themselves $100,000, $200,000 in debt. And you get offered a job. And all you have to do is say stuff that passes for common sense anyway, and no one's going to call you out on it. And if you do say it, you'll get a promotion and more money. So it's not, I mean, it's not complicated why this stuff happened. Just like I always tell people, read Lock, Stock, Lockheed Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, which explains to you how Bruce Jackson in the lobby to explain to expand NATO. Basically, that's why it happened. It was to sell jets and stuff like. I mean, it's it's very bad. And, and you know, you look at a situation now and well, if you back out now, Putin is just going to be encouraged to go invade other places. Well, that rests on the assumption that the reason he invaded Ukraine was because the U.S. looked weak. Is that why he invaded Ukraine? That's a pretty revisionist history as far as I'm concerned. I don't know what you guys' take on that is, but I don't know if you've been I mean, hit with that or seen that argument. The reason. It might have some, might have some iota of truth behind it, but it's, behind it, certainly, but it's not certainly not the entire. Right. It's not like a driving force that you should make policy. on. It's maybe something you consider. Mm-hmm. Definitely you consider it. But mm-hmm. I would think you would consider far more uh, Zelensky coming to Washington and being like, hey, so when are we joining NATO? <laughs> and Biden refusing to rule it out and sending tons of weapons. Right. Like these are probably more proximate causes. For me, I mean, I'd, I'd even I'd even put the the idea that that Putin is dying and he wants to recreate the uh, Russian Empire uh, over uh, the United States is weak. And therefore, he he decided to yeah. invade. I'd put I'd yeah. put we that not, reason first. We do not look weak. Russia spends 80 billion dollars a year on their military. The Chinese barely spend 200 million. We spend a trillion. They hide it away in a bunch of different budgets. But when you gather it all up, add it all, it's basically a trillion bucks. 
I mean, yeah. really, the only shocking thing is that our military isn't way more powerful and high tech. Like the Israelis, for a couple hundred million dollars, built laser defense systems to shoot down missiles. Where the hell are our lasers? The Pentagon spent a hundred million dollars since a month ago. Where's our lasers? <laughs> Maybe they're hiding them. Maybe it's a secret. I don't know. I'm asking the I know same we spent questions, like $500 man. Five hundred dollars for a hammer, you know, and let them, you know, boondoggle us with stuff like the F-35, you guys' favorite plane, you I know. That one. And just have warehouses full of tanks, like we're gonna go fight the Battle of Kursk or something, you know. But then these think tanks who are literally funded by our government writing papers about how, oh yeah, if you know we would fight a tank battle with the Russians over Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania, and they never even mention nuclear weapons, obviously, because if you write something like, well, we actually can't fight the Chinese or the Russians because they have nukes. Well, who the hell's gonna hire you to write anything? That's boring. Mm-hmm. I know. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be any tank battle. Are you serious? But, buddy, you there's going to be no big tank battle. Sorry. No, there's not going to be any big tank battle. That's right. Like, it shouldn't be controversial uh, because it's just a fact. Sorry to push the bubble. Next big giant battle is going to be all autonomous. I'm calling it now. It's going to be all entirely autonomous. Lots of drones. Maybe some autonomous land vehicles, but it's going to be autonomous. Well, I really me, I hope wanna, that I wanna... efforts to curb autonomous weapons are successful or more successful than efforts at nuclear nonproliferation because autonomous weapons, combining them with advances in biotechnology could just could yield some very, very scary stuff, like stuff straight out of the defense planning guidance uh, dreams, right? Like, didn't they have mm-hmm. something there about like, using weapons to target the yep. genetic code of certain populations? Like, yeah, yeah, man. And rebuilding the end of Cold War One. I mean, what? We gone home at the end of Cold War One. Then what happens? Russia's weak and pathetic, and the Europeans figure out some way to get along with them. They resolve the Balkans crisis eventually, or they don't, and it resolves itself. Better than what we got in Europe now. In terms of the, you know, the Indo-Pacific. I mean, China wants Taiwan back. It's part of China. According to them, according to the UN, according to our government, and it is 80 miles from their coast. And we we have literally been preventing the conclusion of the Chinese Civil War for 70 years, despite our insistence 50 years ago that we were going to work towards peaceful reunification, which we never did. I mean, we held the Taiwanese back as late as the George W. Bush administration, but that policy was totally unsuccessful and quickly reversed and actually the current leader of taiwan was the protege of the person who lost the election back then under george w bush because george w bush had the common sense to slap down uh talk of independence so fortunately i think we're well beyond a point where reunification of taiwan into china is a is a possibility at this juncture they've developed a national identity that is strong enough to make that not a possibility. I mean, we even look at places like Hong Kong, who never really were entirely autonomous and attached to the mainland when, you know, the British turned that part over, you know, you can see exactly how China treated their, you know, um, their autonomy or their, you know, um, semblance of autonomy. And it it evaporated overnight, effectively. That's not going to fly 
in Taiwan. And the fact that it it is close, it's 80 miles off the coast or so, but we're talking about, you know, we've had lengthy conversations about, you know, cracking down on Taiwan or, or, or invading Taiwan. It's not a simple task. I just don't see that as a as a realist policy to say, hey, let's go ahead and let them reunify. That'll be a bloody reunification. That that won't be a a coming, you know, together of, of brothers. <laughs> That's gonna be a war. If it if it happens in the next decade, it will have to be through a war. Um, you know, if it if it waits till 2050, the point when they've marked for like the total rejuvenation of China, which would mean total territorial integrity, and they have worked very assiduously to uh, resolve outstanding border disputes with their many, many neighbors. So it's not like China hasn't been trying to work the diplomatic channels. Mm-hmm. It's that Taiwan, with Washington's backing, never felt compelled to, to follow through. And in fact, started getting very mixed messages after George W. Bush. And they've developed their own uh, national identity. That's all great. I, I think they could possibly defend themselves, but I don't think the U.S. could intervene in that conflict. You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update, wherever you get your podcasts. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I don't think I really we should don't. intervene in that conflict, really. Even if we could. You think, oh, what are you, a Xi Jinping apologist? Oh, we needed no, I just don't think we should not only it's, it's insane. Uh really we couldn't i mean they could just mine the crap out of that out of those waters and their subs would be prowling everywhere and their coast is bristling with carrier destroying missiles and they're developing a whole new class of nuclear missiles whose only purpose is to threaten the united states why well we threaten them one two in the event of a fight over taiwan they want to be able to keep us at arm's length and it's part mm-hmm. of the area to strategy aren't coy about it they write openly about it um which so much for you know keeping silent and hiding your capabilities and whatnot i i, I think really the only <laughs> criticism maybe you could make of the chinese leadership is that they they felt way too overconfident by 
at the apparent stumbles of the United States under the total failed administration of the George W. Bush years, you know, who oversaw disastrous wars that made us look weak and ineffectual, and then a financial crisis that was totally preventable, uh, but that, you know, paralyzed Western economies, while China, you know, because it wasn't super integrated into global capital markets, really weathered 2008 and the ensuing Eurozone crisis very well. I mean, it gave them a lot of confidence that now was the time to step forward, to be aggressive. They started drawing their lines in the, you know, South and East China Sea, you know, building up those fake islands, you know, the atolls and stuff. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, well, it's t- tough. Telegraphing, it's tough. telegraphing your capabilities militarily is unto itself a strategy because what it does is it it creates a, it forces your your adversaries to to divert your uh, uh, production and your R&D in military capability towards countering those things that you've telegraphed. You know, as examples, like the, the, yeah. the Russians are really good with, you know, let's say the S-400, S-500 anti-missile systems. Why? Because they were very well aware, well aware of the threat of short and intermediate range ballistic missiles that were sitting in you know, NATO territory not far away. So they needed to be able to divert a whole lot of money into that. They also diverted a whole lot of money into air superiority. You know, uh, that's why they have such good Sukhoi fighter jets, because they need they knew, understandably, that having really good, especially multi-role fighter uh, um, uh, jets is what they needed to counter the imminent threat that was telegraphed to them. Now, as, a, as an extension of that, they didn't spend a lot of money on, say, building up an aircraft carriers, you know, because yeah. they have a limited budget, right? And so for the U.S., at least, what we could do is we could always say, hey, this is what we're building. This is what we have. And all of our adversaries have to then scramble and put all their money towards th- towards countering that. In the meantime, we have enough money to also simultaneously develop other things quietly. So whereas China is telegraphing they might be trying to pull a page out of our book here, right, and saying they're telegraphing their capabilities with anti-ship missiles, so that the U.S. focuses more on how do I, how do we figure out how to make our carriers less vulnerable to these, you know, uh, anti-ship killers, right? And and that's a legitimate concern for us, especially because we we built we're still building multi-billion-dollar aircraft carriers. And, you know, there are prized possessions. To, to my knowledge, I don't think we've lost any carriers. I could be wrong about that in the in that's World War II. Harbor. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I think that's probably that's the only time. But since then, these are our prized carriers. I mean, looking at the, the Moskva ship that Russia lost in, you know, uh, uh, in the Ukraine war, that was a big hit, you know, because they already don't have – you know, uh, an extremely capable surface, um, you know, Navy. Um, they have good submarines, that is, but um, their surface Navy isn't great. But that loss of that ship, their flagship in that region, that's a big hit. So, again, coming back to China, I think them telegraphing what they're doing might be taking a page out of our book and, and making us focus more on how do we shore up our, our um, uh, uh, surface naval vessels in such a way to to make them more effective in a potential conflict, let's say, with uh, in Taiwan uh, vis-a-vis China. It's possible that they're also working on some other stuff on the side that we don't know about, right? And while they're 
on the books military budget doesn't seem to be big enough to support multiple giant um, uh, uh, military R&D. Maybe there's something else going on that we don't know. And so I'm starting to look at it from that frame of reference a little bit. Um, but it could easily just as well be that they that they see weakness in us, you know, from well, as you pointed I'll, out. Well, I mean, they definitely saw us as not invincible. I mean, they were terrified of the United States in the 1990s and early 2000s. I mean, we were an economic powerhouse, overwhelmingly powerful. And we were just going around invading any country we wanted. Sometimes we got a UN resolution, but if they said no or threw any wrenches in the system, we just did it anyway. It was terrifying for them and for the Russians. I mean, you can mm-hmm. literally read it in their public, in their papers, in their think tank stuff. Like they were totally terrified. I'll say this about China. They they don't even spend 2% of GDP yet on their military. And that's because mm-hmm. they're still a developing economy. They have a long way to go. And there was a, a policy debate in the 1980s as they started to grow rich. Should we work on power projection capabilities or should we work on making sure that we can just defend ourselves? And they opted for the latter. It was cheaper right. and it was more practical because those missiles and those mines, a mine, one of their like rocket mines, which if you're familiar with these, basically a sub lays a mine on the seafloor and it has like a propulsion system. And so when a rival submarine passes over it it basically shoots up and blasts it these things cost like mm-hmm. seven thousand bucks right and you can buy <laughs> right? a lot of them <laughs> so doing it on a budget doing it on a budget they have they have literally more mines than all other countries on earth combined when you when you look at sea mines mm-hmm. i mean they, they could and the thing about the u.s when i look at our capabilities one thing that really stands out to me is like we've encountered difficulties with mines going all the way back to our scuffles in in the persian gulf with the iranians mm-hmm. And we still have like zero minesweeping capabilities, even going forward. Like it's just not a priority. It's not very sexy, you know, minesweeping, minesweepers. We want to build another $14 billion supercarrier that right. costs, you know, billions of dollars each year just to run. I mean, power projection is impossible without aircraft carriers. And the U.S. is basically just one giant floating aircraft carriers with a bunch more that it can deploy. The Russians didn't care about aircraft carriers because they just don't have very good ports. A, they were much poorer than us and couldn't do much with it. But they also would have had to sail those aircraft carriers uh, past Turkey, who was a NATO member, you know, into the mm-hmm. Mediterranean, which was also basically a de facto NATO lake. And so they were basically left with like some seasonal ports. Well, that's no good. Not very useful. And subs are way cheaper, you know, and more effective at, you know, projecting, you know, difficulties for your opponent um on a budget so i mean it's but 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 realistically speaking though when i look at china um and and that region over there why are we so and when i say we i mean our policy establishment why are we so convinced that they're just about to dominate that whole region and that they're all just going to turn into client client kingdoms that's never happened bandwagoning doesn't happen Balancing happens, and it was already happening anyway. India has no interest in being dominated by China. Japan has no interest in being dominated by China. Australia, the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, name all those countries. They have historical beefs with China, and they don't like China, and they're scared of China, and they welcome balancing efforts. And so, you know, for the hawks who say, like, yeah, we should try and balance China, 
it's like, okay, even if that's true, we could do it in a way more laid back behind the scenes role. Like if you want to help coordinate efforts between Japan and Australia with the quad and whatnot, okay, you know, it's definitely not my policy preference, but at least it's not stupid and, you know, unnecessary, which our policy is unnecessary. It is unnecessarily aggressive and it's in their face. Um, and, and the Chinese, and even the way the media report on this stuff is so damaging. For example, the Chinese and the Americans are going to talk about some trade issues uh, at an upcoming summit today. It might have already happened. I'm not sure, time, not sure what time it is there right now. But anyway, the report, and this is Reuters, right, which is supposed to be like as objective as breaking news can get. China and U.S. ready to come to blows over trade talks. And it's like, really, what you're saying is have disagreements over trade. Right. They just have to sensationalize you know, the title. Like, <laughs> you do. Yeah. And the, the, the militarization of our discourse, even when talking about things like trade and exchange and diplomatic correspondences. And it's because, I mean, frankly, we just have a way too big and powerful military with no real threats to ourselves. And so you have to go find something to, you know, make it worthwhile so that you can justify spending a trillion dollars a year and putting us further and further in debt, even though. You know, the whole democracies against autocracy thing is just obvious crap. Just look at our list of allies. Just the other day, the Biden administration was singing the praise of the Qataris. The Qataris? Are they a democracy? <laughs> no, obviously not, right? Just like you want to talk about Somalia. Mm-hmm. We befriended dictator after dictator, warlord after warlord. We don't give a shit. It's about our interests or perceived interests. Going all the way back to the Cold War, like tons of countries that weren't democracies joined NATO. Like not tons. It wasn't the majority, but there were a handful of countries that weren't democracies uh, who joined NATO. Um, you know, it's it's not complicated. And yet people fall for it time and time again in this country, I should say. I've found that people I talk to from other countries are much more, uh, you know, cynical about U.S. intentions as well. They should be. Because, you know, just a a strict look at the body count, you know, and in terms of keeping us safe, I just always ask people this question because I've run all the numbers and I've figured out that over the last 20 years, if you had taken all that money that we wasted on foreign adventures and given it all to American households, uh, each household would have gotten like $100,000. So I ask you, would you rather have Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Somalia, Ukraine, $100,000? What, what's it going to be? What do you want? I mean, I definitely want the hundred thousand dollars. I you just choose? bought a condo. <laughs> Pay that shit off. <laughs> you want to have those? You want to have those amazing interventions, or you want a hundred k? Hmm, this is a tough I'm question. Office, so I'm trying this out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Assad did have to go, but he didn't <laughs> and, go. To, to be clear, Joe, uh, you're talking Saddam about Hussein just the did ex- gas the Kurds. So, Joe, you're 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 after talking. Want, just after to be clear. Gaddafi, Gaddafi gave his soldiers Viagra to rape civilian women, according to the New York Times. According to sources. From the intelligence agency. I shouldn't pick on just the New York Times. They all reported those lies. Yeah, they all get. What happens is they got. They all have the same intelligence sources, and you know they they're yeah. spook. 
says something to them, and then they all report the same thing. They're like, oh, according to senior intelligence officials, we don't have exactly. The U.S. has no contact. We have no idea what Ukraine is doing. See, going back to getting. I'm convinced that this is this is the narrative that's shifting that that's being put out where we're saying, well, you know, like, how could we have known that the Ukraine was going to lose the war? Like they were they weren't telling us what was really going on. That's what I that's what I ultimately. So you think this is part so you think this is part of a change in narrative to prepare the American people for Yeah, I do. uh, I think uh, an outright Russian victory or like some sort of negotiated settlement or I don't know. I don't I don't because really at know. the economist said the economist just this last week they were they were talking about how well you know Russia is kind of grounding it out it's ugly but they are winning and that's the economists who are like super hawkish. so so everyone everyone it, most mainstream media outlets are coming to terms that Russia is going to inevitably win this war and and they control the battlefield listen Zelensky said that a hundred soldiers are dying a day. There's and then an additional 500 soldiers are wounded. We're talking about 600, 500, 600 casualties a day. a day in Donbass. How can they sustain that? And that's most likely on the low end. The, it's like the Russians are, are kind of acting like a, like a, a boa constrictor. Uh, they're not, they're, they're just wrapping and they're slowly just strangling the Ukrainian army, and you know the casualties that they're taking right now, and 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 Donbass are just are so high, and I don't think these the guys are being, they're not being fired from the Russians. It's just been yeah. crushing. The, the Russians are rotating their soldiers in and out, like the Ukrainians, the, the professional army in Ukraine, in Ukraine is just kind of stuck in trenches in their in either their trenches and their bunkers and. And, you know, the Russian infantry just comes in to clean up the scraps after heavy artillery fire. Like, I I don't see how there could be a way that Ukraine comes back and wins this war. I don't I don't think it's it's possible. The question is now is can the Ukrainian military retreat from the Donbass and, uh, you know, go beyond the, the Dnieper River east of it and then, you know, fortify their defenses there? Well, because now the Russians... The question ahead, then Jeff. is, what, it, do you even have a viable Ukraine left? If if you chop off the the eastern portion of the country and much of the southern portion of the country, do you even have a viable state left for Ukraine? Define viable. Uh, I mean, is it just know? going to live on Western aid? Because the food thing with the Odessa stuff, like the Ukrainians mined the port to block access to Odessa, and and so the and so the Russians are saying. Well, I'll tell you what, if you remove the mines, we'll let you ship grain out. And we're just going to check ships that come in to make sure they're not holding any weapons, and we'll let them go get grain, and we'll let them leave. We promise. And the Ukrainians, very obviously, are saying, that's a bunch of crap. We're never removing those mines. So we're kind of at that, you know, that point, just like we were over the Minsk Accords, where the Donbass is supposed to get, you know, a, some level of autonomy, but that's supposed to happen after the Russians leave or something, even though that was not what it was on paper. That was how it was later reinterpreted by the Ukrainians themselves. But you basically just have this conundrum where someone has to make the first move. Someone has to put forth some, and, you know, Emmanuel Macron, 
he's not in charge. Schultz, he's not in charge. Like, there's a reason that when something like this, tensions erupt, it's Moscow and Washington that are talking, right? So it's got to be Washington who sends a clear signal to the Ukrainians that it's time to start looking for, for a negotiated settlement here. And I find it so interesting that for years, uh, you know, Washington basically supported, uh, you know, not implementing the agreement and now is basically faced with a scenario where, wow, wouldn't the Minsk agreements have been great? It would have been a whole Ukraine, a not invaded and smashed to pieces Ukraine. It couldn't have been in NATO, but it's not going to be in NATO anyway, not a useful Ukraine. So what was all this for? So I'm I'm convinced that if Zelensky makes a deal, well, here's my conspiratorial mind working. Um, I think you know how all these Azov guys were stuck in the invest in the steel plant over in Mariupol for like a long time, mm-hmm. and uh, you know there were all these stories about an evacuation and how they weren't getting it. I'm I'm convinced that Zelensky wants these guys dead. Would rather have these hard right wing or like these hardcore uh, right wing guys in Ukraine dead because I think he'll, I think there'll be assassination attempts if he settles with Ukraine. What I think what every government underestimated, and this includes the U.S. and this also includes Russia and then all the states in the European Union, what all these countries underestimated is the power of nationalism and Russia underestimated Ukrainian nationalism. I think that's clear. I think they expected that most of the their spooks, the, the, the Russian spooks in Ukraine, I think basically said that, OK, when we invade, most governors are going to align themselves with Putin. You know, the population is generally going to align themselves with Russia. They're Russian speakers. You know, they hate Ukrainians. Well, that didn't happen. On the flip side, the rest of the world underestimated Russian nationalism, and they didn't expect that there was going to be this rallying behind the strong national leader that there was. Um, Like, you see all these Z symbols and stuff like that, which are, you know, kind of borderline, you know, you can go as far as say they're a little fascistic. In their symbolism, the, like yeah. the Z symbolism yeah. in Russia, a little bit. They're, it's a hardcore. <laughs> it's a hardcore nationalist symbol meaning victory, like we're we're in it until the end. And um, what enforced that? And and I think you know the polling data in Russia. Most of that data, most of the polling I saw in Russia was like, we don't want a war at all. Like we're not interested in fighting a big war. It's this is this is something that we don't want. Well, now that has changed to like 70, 80 percent of the population is in favor of this war. And I think what has reinforced that is that um, the the collective Russophobia, uh, you know, this the collective sanctions put. The state in a power to sell the war to its people that this is us against the world right now. This is existential. Like if we don't win this war, this yeah. is the end of our state as we know it. And that's why there's popular support. And that's why I don't even think Russia can um, settle for what they have right now. Like they I think the Russian 
the Russia probably to sell this as like a worthwhile endeavor to its people. I think they need to, you know, get all at least all the way to Odessa. Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough because polling data is is very difficult from Russia. There's a yeah, couple especially in Russia too. That, that actually are like pretty good. And I think we have to also take into consideration that you are literally not even allowed legally to call what's going on a war or an invasion. But there has operation. there has been a noticeable rally around the flag effect, which was predictable. It happened the last time they did this back in 2014. I mean, wars make states and then states make wars. It's not complicated. People feel under threat when people are different. And you know what? For all the talk about how totalitarian Putin's Russia is, its citizens actually had to almost totally open access to the Internet, including Western media. And for years, all they've read is how evil and nefarious and bad Russia and Vladimir Putin are. Now, from the Russian perspective, Putin is actually not that bad for the average Russian. And you have to have had lived through the 1990s in Russia, probably, to appreciate Putin's rule. Because to me, it seems despotic and awful. No, never want to live there. But if I had lived in Russia in the 1990s and early 2000s, maybe I would feel differently. Average life expectancy under Putin has gone up 10 years. Average income has almost doubled. I, I don't even know what, what people expected. That, you know, de- constantly demonizing a guy who's basically like a center-right kind of Republican kind of guy. They act like he's like the hard edge of the most nationalist, crazy Russians out there, which is just not true at all. I mean, I think we're way more likely if Putin... Uh, drops dead dies or if he drops dead out in a tomorrow. coup we are not going to see some western happy dude taking this taking his place alexei navalny is going to become president of russia the halls of power to- are filled with crazy anti-western hawks a lot of whom think putin has been a western dupe that is the main that's what i've been trying to tell people is that there's more criticism of putin from, from the, the right. right. Oh, yeah. Than, than, you know, the liberal left. He looks behind like, Alexei, the wall, constantly falling for Western lies, you know. Like Dmitry uh, Medvedev, if you hear, hear his rhetoric, uh, Medvedev has been saying, it's kind of been like a spokesman for the war. Um, he's been saying some of the more kind of like aggressive things, you know, saying things like, oh, like, you know, when Sweden and Finland said they were going to join NATO, he was like, well, they're going to be on the nuclear calculation list now. Like with when there's a nuclear war, they'll be nuked. Um, you know, he's been, you know, he he's Putin's boy. He was he was a president of Russia when when um, when Putin um, went, you know, went down to prime minister and Medvedev is seen as a as a as like a Western shill for a really long time. Like he was like, Oh, Mevita. And now he's like, you know, saying all this, he's, he's, uh, you know, more of a Russian nationalist. The criticism that Putin gets is right now. The, the, the large, the, the primary criticism is why haven't you just declared all out war already? Why are we like, you know why is this taking so long why don't we just call cities like why yeah. don't we just go engage in total war right now and win this 
for all. Like, there's nothing else that we can do. That's what he. That's the criticism that he's getting. Like the amount of criticism that he got for not just completely obliterating the Avestipol, uh, the Avestotals, excuse me, uh, factors. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. was called in an airstrike, right? Dropped a yeah. five-pound bomb all over him, like a like a a, a bunker buster. Yeah, like the amount of criticism he got for that for not sent, yeah. for not um completely like leveling that steel factory was intense in Russia, yeah. and if he dropped dead tomorrow. I think you would be really scared who would be the guy, the next president of Russia. I'm very scared. It ain't going to be, it isn't going to be, it's not going to be Alexei Navalny. Sorry to break your heart. Alexei Navalny is a construct that was created from big, the West. Big heart for the anti He's a YouTuber. Guy. He's a, fu- he's a fucking YouTuber. The people who are, who get the, are these people who are like um, coming up the ranks in political power are Hardline. people who gained. Well, I'm just saying, like the people who, um, like the United States and the, and the West, uh, fetishize their popular personalities that are used because they've uh, created goodwill with the country. That's what Zelensky is. He was an actor, comedian. He created. He was a popular actor and uh, comedian in in Ukraine and Russia. He created enough goodwill with the country where people are like, "Fuck it, yeah, let's do it." Like Matthew McConaughey type guy I, yeah i, I might heard be governor made of texas someday it, it's it's the rock might be our but president. he's being used but he's being used by nefarious people for political prefer yes. political end and um it's always been clear. i don't think that in i think in russia you know they they're very allergic to people who they uh think are are uh, western shills and you know the real opposition party in in russia to, to Putin has always or to even to Yeltsin as well. It's always been um, it's it's always been the Communist Party in Russia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, liberal. Well, the liberals in Russia have have suffered many, many defeats. And like there's basically no liberal caucus. I mean, our establishment will trot out some expat and it's like what, what, like 100 million. You found, found one guy like to say something anti Putin like there, there's just no liberal electorate especially outside the cities. Um, and even, you know, uh, yes, a lot of the young, they want, you know, speech freedoms and things like that. Um, economic liberalization, though, and 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 Westernization for, for a lot of the country is, is, it's just too associated with the experience of the 1990s. And a lot of people don't know this, but there's been whole books written by our people about it, some of them just kind of bragging about it, others being more critical, but basically explaining how we destroyed the Russian economy. When when the Soviet Union collapsed, we sent our boys over there and our girls to teach them how to run things properly and proceeded to basically destroy the economy and turn it into an, an oligarch's playground. I mean, and Yeltsin was our, and and then their experience of democracy was the Clinton administration intervening in the election, which we've talked about, to make sure Boris Yeltsin got elected. Like it all, I just think about how this must have looked to someone like Putin, who was close to the halls of power, who saw how privatization worked and saw how democracy worked and very quickly decided these are mostly shams that the powerful use to stay in power. 
Hey, and just to add one thing to that. So you know how the the, the presidential, you know, Putin has very strong presidential powers. All those were created by Yeltsin. while Yeltsin was president. All those after like real strong presidents. the parliament, literally yeah, after, rolling tanks in there. And he was our guy. Putin you know is why, democracy in Russia. Why, why is Russia, why is it called a Duma in Russia? Oh, well, it's because the parliament was bombed in the 1990s by Boris Yeltsin. Got rid of he disbanded. He got it was got rid of, and then they went back to the traditional Duma. I guess well, that was Gorbachev like what the Tsar's court. Gorbachev was the democratizer. He Gorbachev was the democratizer. Yeltsin was a power hungry drunken crook, and then he gave us Putin. So really, Clinton gave us Putin. There you go. Bill Clinton gave us Vladimir Putin. How do you like that? And Hillary Clinton gave us Bill Clinton, so it's Hillary's <laughs> fault. That's right. I so, forgot. It always has to be Hillary's fault. I forgot. Right. Lock her up. So, right. W- I forgot. One, one, so there's there's <laughs> one more topic I wanted to, I want to touch on because I think it's important, and I, I think it goes into the whole. Uh, I think the world is being. This is I'm I'm speaking off the cuff right now, and I haven't completely formulated this this uh this thought yet, but. I feel like the world is being divided by man. I don't want to use this verbiage because it makes me it puts me in the camp of like the right wing nuts. But there's sovereign nations, like not like nations that have like strong, uh, um, who are reverting to nationalism, who have strong national identity, and then. Uh, the other half of the world is, you know, uh, dominated by kind of like Western liberalism. I wasn't going to say the word globalism, but I'm trying not to say the word globalism. On the globalists. Oh, globalists. Do you to globalism because it has pejorative connotations among some crowds or because you don't think it has any specific meaning? I think it's so vague. I think, I think when people say globalist, it's so vague and it makes it sound like. It it's not that it's pejorative. It's just it's like when uh like left wing people call everyone Nazis and right racist type thing, where you know it, it's just used as a pejorative for you know secret society type thing. It's not it, it's vague and it's not really descriptive. I I feel like when you say when people say the word globalist, um I feel like there there there's there's more descriptive uh words you can use to describe who people when people are called globalists but i also have a problem with people constantly misusing the word marxist you know people like refer to everyone as marxist they're not i don't think they're marxist i think that they're just you know corporatist uh but the point i'm trying to make is that and i'm still defining this is that um you have nations like india you have nations like China. You have nations like Turkey, for example, which I which I want to get to, who um, are sovereign nations who have independent foreign policies. And then you have other states that are basically kind of like city states from ancient Rome, from from the Roman Empire, um, mm-hmm. like countries in Europe don't have their own independent foreign policy it's the united states policy 
It's really whatever the United States says goes. Germany doesn't have its own independent foreign policy. It's U.S. foreign policy. Like, look at Olaf Scholz. Olaf Scholz, Green Party, a tradition of, of you know, trying to to practice detente with Russia, was pretty sober prior to the invasion in, in terms of rhetoric and what German policy would be, was pressured and full, collapsed like a folding chair. Like, old, like I've never seen a leader collapse so hard as Olaf Schultz has. But be praised so strong. Right. And he can't win either. And it's so funny. Olaf Schultz is in like is in the funniest position ever. He's pro- he's gonna he's definitely the he's gonna go down as like one of the most politically unsavvy guys. Like Boris Johnson's a bastard, and and I think everyone should hate him for everything that he's done. Especially if I was in Britain and I learned about how his uh his, the parties that he was throwing and stuff like that. Like what a bastard. And but the he's a, he's apparently. more politically savvy than Olaf Schultz. Olaf oh, Schultz yeah. went back on his principles, and now he gets shit from both sides. So now er, basically everyone hates him in Germany. And actually, the hardliners hate him. Yeah. And and his party got hammered in some really key elections. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know they, the results from Schleswig-Holstein. You know people tried to play that down. But then the the big Rhineland vote came and it was like, oh, nope, actually, people are pissed, you know, so. Well, it was day it was by design, though. It was by it was they they weren't supposed to have an independent foreign policy by design. I mean, you think about how much it costs to maintain the type of military establishment that we have. And you look at Europe's phenomenally luxurious welfare states like they work like 30 hour weeks, retire at 60 you have way better retirements than us, and it's like, I mean, there was they a have meme like went, there was a meme they have like that went around six it was, weeks it of vacation a, or two months of worth of vacation. What the fuck the, is that? America, a, we have two weeks. We get yeah. two weeks vacation here. I'll tell you what. Every once in a while, a meme just really sums it up well, and it was just a runway, just it's an airfield, just loaded with f-35s and it was like and the caption was russia is about to find out why americans don't have universal health care and that is <laughs> that's damn true because bernie sanders captain free college and health care voted for the f-35 program just like he votes for all the silly interventions we do because he knows what gets paid and what doesn't and what's popular and what doesn't and he's a politician and tasked with choosing between your college and debt and stuff he chooses manufacturing jobs and war and he's he's what passes for a socialist in this country right like that's insane we we have no left in this country alexandria ocasio-cortez you know supports nato expansion what kind of left do we have no left at all the the left in this country is this is why i hate it when people are like oh the marxist communist far left democrats they're going it's not the they're not far left Democrats. They're not no. far leftist. The le- communist Marxist types, like real socialist types in the United States, are probably the most marginalized political community in in this country. I don't think oh, there is more a more marginalized political community than than communist. You throw our Democrats into Germany, they're they're CDU people. 
You know, you throw. Ain't that the truth? Yep. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no real left. I mean, you know, you're right. Throwing Marxist around. We should just eliminate that word. Neoliberal, Marxist. Those are globalists. Those are all words we should just eliminate from our discourse. Because as George Orwell said, when words stop meaning anything at all, they get abused. And, you know, someone like Nancy Pelosi will come out and say something. People will blow up Twitter like, she's a Marxist. She's a far left who loves trading free market. Like she is a worth hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, but doesn't want you to have universal health care. You know, doesn't want the rich to pay taxes. Like, are you crazy? I I love your eyes wide closed to think that she's a Marxist. I, I love her. Um, she was questioned about uh, Congress, uh, you know, elected officials trading stocks. And she's like, I think that elected officials should have access to the free market. <laughs> Next question. Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> the free market. Is, Nancy Pelosi is a more successful investor than Warren Buffett. You, you know, uh, the comedian Kyle Donegan, you never you ever hear of him. Oh, he does yeah. uh, really funny impressions. Of uh, of Joe Biden, he does a great impression of uh, of Nancy Pelosi, and she always he has, has skeleton like, hands, like a money ball. <laughs> he has like a like a like what's his name show uh, from CNN, um, uh, Kramer. Uh, why am I forgetting his first name? Jim Kramer. Jim Kramer. Mm-hmm. Jim, Jim Kramer's show where, yeah. she's, where she's picking stocks. Um, she but it's like I. She's like, at first, I wasn't successful at the market, but then I got in Congress and created laws. (laughs) It's just, it's outrageous, too, because even the very sparse rules that they made for themselves about stock trading, they violate them all the time. All the time, with no consequences at all. Right, left, doesn't matter. They all do it. And you put Martha Stewart in jail. Yeah, they put Martha Stewart in jail. Yeah, adding value. I I am am not pro very many initiatives that inhibit people's freedom. But if you're sitting in Congress, you got to have your funds passively managed or actively or actively managed by someone else. It's outrageous that they're allowed to trade on their privileged information, and we act like it's not insider trading. No, that or they got to make insider trading dangerous. It's going to be. And they all went and started dumping equities. Mm-hmm. What? That's outrageous behavior. And it maybe gets mentioned on a news cycle, and then it's just, bah, forget it. Who gives a shit? Hey, Putin, it's just Washington. Trump is racist, and Obama, Biden is weak, and Obama was a Muslim. And that's what passes for, for political discourse if you turn on the television and if you check oh, Twitter. It is um, it is real it is real stupid out there. It's like bad. It, man, real bad. it is real stupid listening to but bo- it's both is on the right and the left. Man. Yeah, it is it is real dumb. And you were sides. and you were so right. You called it like a year ago. You were like, Joe, you watch. The neoconservatives are gonna be in the ascendancy now that Trump is gone. And you were They're just mad. They're just so ready. They hated Donald Trump for that. Even though Trump eventually was bullied into going along with all their policies anyway. Yeah, it's like they got what they wanted anyway with, yeah. with Trump. He was so the only thing they they castrated Trump almost instantly. 
like before the, the castration elected. of Trump before he was elected, they already took his people away. Like his people were gone. The people who are like giving, who were feeding him that American for first uh, type policy, like Bannon was gone. Um, he was forced to cut ties with Bannon. Basically, uh, Mike Flynn was gone. Mike Flynn is fucking crazy, by the way. I'm not Mike trying to Flynn endorse is crazy, Mike Flynn. but he also he did nothing crazy. unusual or criminal. Yeah, it doesn't mean that. He, also means that he wasn't he wasn't trapped by the FBI. But I follow Mike Flynn on Telegram. Oh yeah, he's crazy. He's a bona fide crazy nut job. Um, oh, yeah. He's a fuck. He's not QAnon. <laughs> But he no, is he is crazy. QAnon crazy. He's QAnon crazy. I heard him on a hot mic calling them all crazy. Oh, he was? Look it up. I don't know if afterwards he beat back from that, but he got hot mic calling Oh, QAnon. you know what? He's just fucking... Then he's just a, a crook who's, who's just playing on that then. Oh, because, yeah. All right. He's just some crook who's playing on these dumb boomers who get caught up in that stuff. But he's... Um, yeah. But his QAnon... Is, his telegram is all QAnon shit. And, is it? Um, Oh yeah, he's he looks like a real crazy person. But then again, I mean, he, he was awful ideas, head of the, and I'm glad he didn't get a position in the government. Uh, but I also think that it was totally outrageous the way that he was prevented from from taking his position in the government. That is not the CIA and FBI's prerogative, and they made it their prerogative, and they used our mainstream media outlets uh, to do this. Um, just like killing the Hunter Biden laptop story. Twitter literally immediately suspended the New York Post account and the CIA and their people literally gave information to the New York Times where they basically said, yeah, it's all bullshit. And the C- and the New York Times just, you know, uncritically just repeated, you know, according to uh, X and current intelligence sources, this is a very obvious signed letter and- from 40 members of the intelligence community that this is Russian information. This is Russian propaganda. Meanwhile, it was like instantly confirmed that it yeah, was actually his laptop. Later, this is what I mean like, about what you, the, being the paper of record. Six months later, they run this tiny little, oops, yeah, uh, actually that was correct, but uh, also nothing's going on. Yeah, that was true, but, you know, it didn't influence the election. You know, the Russians did that. Yeah. I, I mean, what was what was there to confirm? It's this Hunter Biden smoking crack getting a foot job. What is there to confirm? What is his face superimposed on that? Yeah, and and the whole thing about him getting the job with Burisma, like I don't even know what there was to wonder about or investigate. I know it was like a conservative talking point for years, and it's obviously true. It's obviously true. Joe Biden was handed Ukraine. That was part of his portfolio when he was the vice president. And oh my God, then his son winds up with a a no show job for a million dollars a year with a natural gas company in Ukraine, which he knows nothing about. Wow, well, gee, I wonder what was happening there. Do we need evidence at all to call this what it is? I got better things to do than to wait around for someone to finally fess up, right? Which we are finally getting to the bottom of things, but I don't know, it'll probably be the IRS that gets him in the end. <laughs> That's who gets everybody. Don't mess with the government's money. Nope. That's serious. That gets serious right away. Well, you can lie and steal to from whoever you want, but it better not be the government. They will get you. So, there's so here was the point I was trying to get to. Turkey. I keep on getting lost. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Turkey. 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 Right. Turkey. So right. Turkey. Um. So Turkey 
first all right let me just pull this back a little bit so everyone has some context so they know what we're talking about sweden and finland have historically been neutral they haven't they haven't been part of nato in finland's case and sweden i don't think it really matters if they join nato or not they're so aligned with with european policy i don't i don't think the russians really care on the other hand finland shares a border with russia finland fought a war with russia um in this century and um you know finley has fit finley finland has been a neutral country during the cold war and finland probably has i mean i don't know that much about the finnish economy but i, I hear their living standards are pretty good they've been successful a successful state so um both governments are trying to join NATO. And the opposition to joining NATO has come from Turkey. And Turkey, at first, I thought Turkey was just trying to kind of bargain with them. Say, oh, they're, they, they're, they want to do something. Here's, we got some gripes about this. We can get some concessions over, 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 uh, their their NATO membership will ultimately agree, but we're going to see what we can get out of it. And you know what Turkey wants is they want access to the they want to get back into the F thirty five program, and they also want both countries to label the Kurds as terrorist organizations, and because uh, they historically have have uh, you know show camaraderie and have backed the the Kurds in, in northern Syria and Iraq and, and and in Turkey as well, and um, so he wants them to label them as terrorist organizations, and uh, I mean first and foremost, man, the Kurds always are getting fucked. I know. Talk about a group of people who just get screwed around by wow. everyone. Um, but it, it's he said that there's the other I just heard a statement from him saying like, no, I don't. This is not good timing. This it wouldn't be appropriate for them to join NATO. I'm going to veto it. So um, it seems like Turkey really is one of those rare exceptions that is actually a sovereign nation that makes its own policy at the very least. You say what you want about Erdogan. I, I definitely have a lot of complaints about Erdogan and not at all think he's a good man but he's definitely a, a, a skill he's a he's a much more skilled statesman than really anyone in the european union um so i wanted to get your take on that like you know did you think do you think that turkey is acting reasonable do you think that turkey is acting more of just self-interest what what are your thoughts my thoughts yeah um well i i think like you i i had the same initial reaction which was okay they obviously want to squeeze a few concessions out of this because this is a big one it's a big one and it's got to be unanimous and uh turkey's been on the outs with washington they've had that to, for all of erdogan's uh accomplishments i have to say he he really made a mess of a lot of his relationships over the last five to ten years, and uh, he's been really working hard to reingratiate himself. He's made a horrible mess of Turkey's economy. I mean, the situation is just terrible there. And so, ah, uh, boy, it's it's tough to say how that's going to shake out. I mean, 
Washington sent a pretty unmistakable message to Turkey after Erdogan's most recent round of statements, which was basically like, yeah, you know, maybe we will have to support Kurdish fighters if uh, Turkish troops move in there. And it's like, so, so we're going to have NATO, NATO back troops fight each other now. Is that, is that what's going to happen? You know, and it's basically just a thinly veiled threat of like, listen, we all know who calls the shots here. So we will make your life extremely difficult. You're already getting on our nerves. Like when you when you read official statements and stuff like that, like you just have to think, how would a bully talk to someone? Because that's basically what the United States does. You can read about it in foreign affairs. They brag about it. Why the U.S. can get away with bullying its allies. So it's not complicated, you know, and as, as far as that goes. The U.S. is very determined that those countries will join NATO and they will do what it takes to get Turkey to go along with it. I don't know if it'll be F-35s. I don't know if it'll be some kind of token acknowledgement of the, what are they, the, what's their group again? The PLA, the KPA? The Kurdish there's a couple. There's, there's, there's a couple, there's a couple there's different ones. There's a few ones. other ones, but I There's mean, the one in Syria, the one in Iraq, and the yeah. one that's mainly in Turkey, but, you know, they're, so, they, they hate them all and the they Swedes basically the associate all the Kurdish groups the same. Yeah, and they've harbored, you know, terrorists. I mean, one man's terrorist, another man's freedom fighter, right? I mean, I'm sure in the, the Turkey, Russian- the Turkey's defense, they do have terrorist attacks from Kurds. Yeah, I don't. But- yeah, I don't dispute it. I just mean, you know, that kind of stuff happens. You know, states have interests. They don't really care about the interests of states weaker than them. Uh, you know, unless they need them to do something. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> I think Erdogan does try and steer his own ship. Uh, I also think that's part of why he's in a, the domestic state that he's in, uh, is cause he basically burned a lot of bridges. Um, he pissed off his fellow Sunnis and then he went and pissed off the Americans and then he went and pissed off the Europeans. So the Europeans had to kind of play nice with him a lot because of the migrants that they pay him not to allow to enter into Europe. It's a pretty simple quid pro quo there. So they have to kind of play ball with him a little bit. Um, The other Sunni states in the area are super pissed off at him, uh, kind of following the Saudis lead. But I mean, Erdogan has been on a super charm offensive in the region because uh, he's trying to attract capital. Um, because I don't know if you if you like follow Turkey's economy at all, but like I mean, its inflation rate is uh, last time I checked, it was like over fifty percent. Um, I mean they need they need they need help bad, um, and the Gulf monarchies could give it to them, and so maybe a little bit of contrarianism, trying to show that yeah, see we're because Erdogan's big innovation was embracing turkey's islamism right because because prior to that it was from from kamal ataturk onward it was it was was supposed to be a western facing country more european than arab you know or whatever you want to say because they're turks uh, you know not embracing islam trying to be more like a western country and erdogan uh is a total rebuke of that whole idea um so it's complicated, but, and obviously I don't have a crystal ball. 
I do know that Washington gets what it wants with its friends, nominal friends and allies. So Finland and Sweden will join NATO. And if Turkey wants to throw a big old fit about it, I wouldn't be shocked if Washington just said, you know what? Unanimity is no longer required. You guys are in. What's Turkey going to do about it? Quit? What's anybody going to do about it? Nothing. The U.S. is NATO. They 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 supply half the money, all the arms. I mean, I am I, the senator. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's really messed up because you know liberal hegemony is a very interesting form of control because it uses institutions that are nominally voluntary, but when one member is overwhelmingly preponderant, it can use its weight to get its way a lot. And that's why the U.S. has been so opposed to any institution building by China. So, you know, we really don't have time to go into all that stuff. But, I mean, China has really been working hard to build parallel institutions where it can write the rules. It can hold and keep the U.S. out. Like, the U.S. fixes its institutions I mean, successive Russian leaders asked Washington, like, hey, could we join NATO? And Washington was like, uh, yeah, maybe, yeah. I mean, we're not going to close the door on it. We'll, we'll talk. Yeah, we'll talk, you know. Behind closed doors, they were like, that's never going to happen. You know, they're going to want an equal say in it. That's not going to happen. You know, we've got a whole docile collection of basically pro-consular states in terms of their foreign policy, as you pointed out. Every once in a while, someone will throw a tiff and not want to go along with something, but like, that's that's the problem with Europe not having its own foreign policy is because anytime Washington wants to do something, they automatically have members of the coalition of the willing, um, especially the newer Europe, old Europe divide. And Emmanuel Macron, as much as I'm pleased that he's trying to get towards an off ramp, he's making it impossible politically to get. Washington out of Europe because the Eastern Europeans never trusted the French and Germans to look after their interests. They had plenty of experience with that going back to the aftermath of the First World War and the Second World War. And so Rumsfeld, for all the imbecilic things he did, he recognized astutely immediately. These new Eastern European countries are much better to work with than the Germans and the French because they're totally on board with whatever we want to do. You know, the French and the Germans have always had misgivings about U.S. policy toward Russia. And, you know, that was part of what the gas pipelines were for. It was to make Europe and Russia harmoniously intertwined. Uh, But their economic development and political development, the integration of the two, uh, was really retarded by uh, military policy for the continent still being directed by Washington. So, you know, I just kind of always throw up my hands at the end of this stuff. Like we're in a huge fucking mess. And I won't pretend that any of my policy recommendations are magic bullets, but certainly pushing harder in the direction we've been going seems to me the definition of just insanity. These policies have not worked. They've made everyone worse off, much poorer, Even the whole they kept the peace after the Second World War, that is just a white people way of looking at things. Because if you lived in a lot of countries in the developing world that weren't white, it was not peaceful and it was not prosperous. 
So the idea that, you know, Washington's hegemony has just been this blessing to the world is to take a very narrow view of things. And I just feel like there's no, they call it great power autism is what it's called in the literature. But it's basically the inability of hugely powerful states to understand the concerns of others and the way their actions are perceived by others. I see no evidence that we make even the slightest attempt at doing that. So, except for token. Like, we're we're going to fight environment to make sure it's not strong, you know. Uh, but also, we'd love your help with fighting terrorism and uh, nuclear proliferation. Is that cool? Obviously not. Why would it be? Right? I mean, that's why North Korea still exists. It's because they know, Beijing knows that if the North Korean regime goes, that peninsula that adjoins it and is contiguous with it is going to be dominated by Seoul which means dominated by the United States, which is just unacceptable. We would never tolerate that for a second. Only one country tried in our immediate vicinity, and it was invaded, impoverished, and we tried to murder its leadership like three dozen times. So, I don't know. Go USA. It's very American of you to say, Joe. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I love America. I love the fact that we're a country where you could actually have real liberalism because we face no threats. A country like China can never be fully liberal because it is surrounded by potential enemies. We can live in total freedom and prosperity here in the United States because we face no threats at all. But you look at a country like Poland, who are very tough on dissent to the government and you know outside the parliament well they're like a frontline cold war state what do you what do you want them to do like let people purposefully be sabotaging their national unity like well the only threats that we face are the ones that we manufacture ourselves so you know keeps us on our toes it does we're our own best enemy we ran out of enemies, as Colin Powell said. He was complaining. <laughs> out of enemies, basically. So we made our own enemies. There's actually not a small amount of thinking among, like, the more conspiratorially minded that, like, basically Washington allowed Beijing to just get super rich so that they'd actually have someone to fight eventually. <laughs> there's, like, a neocon. I have a whole collection of, like, the worst of the neocon essays, and there's one in there that's basically, like, um, China isn't yet worthy of, you know, great power competition. It'll probably be about 20 years. And so while we're waiting for them to build that up, we'll take care of like Iraq and Iran and, you know, just a few other things before we go fight with them. It's like, okay, or we could not. I mean, <laughs> that an option? Because I vote for that option. <laughs> well, they don't, they don't have clearly thinking people uh, that make the policy. So, you know. Hopefully that changes in the very near future. I feel like they behave totally rationally. I feel like they think totally clearly and self-interestedly. Because as Henry pointed out, there are tons of highly intelligent and competent foreign policy thinkers in the United States who are completely shut out of the media except on a show like Tucker Carlson or maybe uh, Kennedy over on Fox Business. I mean, we have intelligent people who understand that the way things have been going are bad and stupid. Andrew Bacevich, Graham Allison, 
Stephen Wald. I mean, and it's not just on because those guys more lean toward the right. I mean, but it's on the other side, too. You know, I mean, it's it's they've monopolized the discourse and there is a there is a logic to these institutions and their setups into the career ladder. And if you want to climb it, you will stay inside the bounds of what is considered polite conversation. I'll give you a quick example. If Anthony Blinken invited you over for a cocktail party, would it be politic or polite of you to mention that under his former boss, we basically helped create ISIS that we to get at Iran, and then we had to go fight them in Iraq War Two or Three? Was that Three? That was Iraq War Three. Yeah. Would that be an acceptable thing to say? No, it's totally true, but it's totally out of bounds. You will never read that in foreign policy or foreign affairs, even though they write comprehensive analyses of those conflicts you'll never read that so well well uh joe you know i'm I'm starting to get a little bit of internet issues here and i'm starting to get concerned that we won't be able to finish and save up everything and we're at about two hours and 16 minutes which is awesome just in the interest of time I, i feel like maybe we can give you a closing thoughts so that you can plug anything you like or or wrap up any thoughts that you might have opened up in, in the show so that we can call this one a night. Thanks. Uh, I am quite tired as well. Um, I feel like at this point you guys know where to find me. Uh, you know, Mises Institute, Libertarian Institute, uh, antiwar.com, uh, the Eurasian Review. Uh, I've also had papers published in like journals. If you read journals, Libertarian, uh, the Journal of Libertarian Studies, Journal of the American Revolution. Uh, if you're a fellow libertarian scholar, I will be in Nashville in September. Um, I will also be at the Libertarian Party convention speaking later this month here in Michigan. Uh, I just want you all to live safe and prosperous and happy lives. And I think my government is doing everything it can to make sure that you don't. In the sole interest <laughs> of keeping on playing Age of Empires with the world. So... I have nothing to lie to you about and nothing to gain from saying any of this. I have no reason to do any of this other than that I have five kids and I think this is totally immoral and we're saddling them with a whole bunch of problems and potentially a nuclear war. So, you know, whatever. You can look me up or trash me on Twitter. But if you come to trash me on Twitter, be ready because I I definitely punch back. So... But Thanks. why male models? I appreciate your your, <laughs> uh, your commitment to 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 trying to just be honest about the issues because we all agree that invasions of other countries are outrageous, right? right? And we're all here just trying to live in peace and prosperity. And so, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. It's always good talking. It's our pleasure. Well, well, well thank you. Honor. And um, I hope everyone and thank the audience, the listeners as well. Um, thanks for, thanks for, uh, listening to another episode of bro history. It means a lot that you guys listen, you know, um, the fact that I'm very aware that there's other shows in the world, there's other things or that you can be listening to like music or whatever while you're, you know, listening to podcasts. Um, so I appreciate the attention that, you know, I just appreciate the, um, you know, the time that is given to to listen because i know that actually takes a lot you know more than you think you know there's only a select amount of things that you can consume a day so if you listen to this show um really appreciate it 
And if you want to support the show, you can join us on Patreon. You can all, you get access to our Slack account where we continue the conversation. We have an active community. It's very fun. And then um, you can also rate us on your podcast app. That's Spotify and uh, Apple. So five-star review. Give us one of those. If you like the show, if you hate the show, then you can give us a one-star. As long as you engage, we're fine with it. Um, write us for a review. Say, hey, you guys are awesome or you guys suck. Um, and then we will be back next week. And, yes, we'll be back next week. We're We're off the... Until I get my wedding in July, late July, I'm going to make a firm promise that we're going to come out with an episode every week. <laughs> try to hold try to hold me to it. If we miss it, then you have permission to kick me in the balls. All right. Let's end this thing. <laughs> Peace. Peace.